On the Record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk. Much talk in recent weeks uh, and indeed in today's papers about the Late Late Show. We hear a lot about how the Late Late shaped key debates in Ireland on a range of social and political issues with legendary interviews, Jerry Adams, Porrick Flynn, Annie Murphy, uh, Peter Brook, the former Secretary of State. What about the very first series of the show though? Because before it was a hit, the series in 1962 did divide people quite sharply. So who was on it? What did they talk about? And how do they keep it on the air? Donald Fallon is with us. Um, Donald, it's a good week to look at the Late Late um, given that it's also the anniversary of one of the guests from that first series. Yeah, this month marks the, the 50th anniversary of the passing of Archbishop John Charles McQuaid. He died on the 7th of April, uh, 1973. And look, once arguably the most powerful man in Irish politics, despite never holding mm-hmm. elected office and never getting a single vote at the ballot box. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the first places many in Ireland would have seen John Charles McQuaid challenged was on this television show. Uh, he was uh, you know, interrogated by a self-described observant Catholic, which was wow. born. Uh, when Gayborn died in, in 2019, I mean, all of the obituaries spoke about how this show had broken barriers, mm. how this show had put, you know, subjects we didn't really want to talk about centre stage in Ireland. And even before he died, you know, President Higgins spoke uh, at an award ceremony as, as Gayborn, someone who was at times controversial, outspoken, unafraid to break new ground. It had been said that throughout his many decades on television and radio, Gayborn's role in the shaping and crafting of modern Ireland has been Profound, but I think that the reoccurring feature of a lot of the coverage when, when Gay passed away uh, was a lot of the interviews that you mentioned there in that introduction. You mm. know, these interviews that come later on, you have, you, have a, you have a confidence presenting the Late Late Show in the seventies or the eighties or the nineties to take on uh, whatever you want. But this first series in 1962 is, is a very different story. Well, as you were saying just in the ad break before you came on air, of course, it's worth reminding that there, there isn't a, an archive that survives to this day from that first season, which is something which is a great shame. And, and maybe oh. the reason why we think of uh, P. Flynn or Annie Murphy as being the seminal moment is because you see them repeated afterwards. Yeah. But there is no archive of and, some of those early days. Not only was McQuaid on the show, apparently he was challenged from the audience, which would be just an extraordinary God. thing to have if we had it. If, if, if only it was over the tapes. If only it was still there to, to see. Um, but we, we are not going to look at those modern day uh, things as you said we are looking at a very different time we're going to be looking at the very first series of the show um, when it had a very different budget and no one yeah. was really sure if this was going to be a fixture at all So what I wanted to do for the, for the slot today was dig into the Irish newspaper archives from 1962 and 1962 only you know forgetting everything we know about what this show became and mm. just trying to look at it in, in the world of its first series and look it's now the world's second longest running late night talk show second only to the Tonight Show Mm. Uh, which inspired it and for its producer Tom McGrath back in the day Tom McGrath had worked as a floor manager at CBC Studios Ah, he'd seen The Tonight Show up close of course later on it was presented by Johnny Carson it became a smash hit Mm. but it was already on its way there and that gave him the idea you know could this could this thing work at home so it's very much an American concept I suppose Mm. in some ways so in in some ways they're looking across the ocean and in other ways they're looking from Donnybrook across the Liffey because they're looking up at Drumcondra and the Archbishop's Palace (laughs) uh, to see what was going on up there yeah I mean everyone in 1962 is thinking about television in a new way Tom McGrath wants a a US style chat show and then across the River Liffey yeah in in, in Drumcondra which is synonymous with McQuaid and, and the church they're interested in television as well and there's a really extraordinary report which makes its way onto McQuaid's desk in March 1962, just before the Late Late Show airs that summer, revealing that of RTE's 16 producers, only four are Catholic, 
One, That's it remarkable says, in its own right. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah the, the country that it was. One yeah. is described as, I love this, an English convert but separated from her husband. So a Catholic but not a perfect Catholic. And another one is described as a divorced actress who's been associated with numerous left-wing <laughs> groups for many years. <laughs> so McQuaid is really interested in what's happening uh, yeah. in RTE. And unfortunately for him, the first time he makes a go at television, it kind of goes a bit rogue. We did a slot in this before. Yes, about Ryer. Ryer. Yeah. You know, a documentary programme made by priests. Uh, but basically, Rourke ended up making kind of very socially radical television, which I yeah. don't think was the aim uh, of McQuaid from the get-go. So yeah, in Drumcondra and indeed in Donnybrook, many, many people in 1962 are thinking about television and what it can be used to do. Yeah, um, talk to us about where Gay Byrne came from, because uh, we have this sense now that like the, the first thing that any of us ever associate Gay Byrne with was the Late Late Show. But of course... Gay Byrne, you know, you, you don't just give the job uh, to someone who has never done anything like this before. He had a, a bit of a history behind it. Yeah, Mary Kenny, you know, ever, ever entertaining. Uh, she writes about Gay Byrne's emergence, this great article. She really captures the hard grafting nature of a young broadcaster and just a guy who's willing to do everything and anything, you know, to keep himself in the limelight. I mean, Mary writes, Gay's broadcasting apprenticeship began with modelling himself on Eamon Andrews, another Sing Street alumnus Mm. who'd become a radio and TV celeb in Britain. Gay would spend hours imagining that he was Eamon Andrews. He took any job that helped him hone his presentation skills, insurance clerk, cinema manager, a stint as an amateur actor. After many rejected efforts, he finally got into Radio Air in 1958 doing ads, presentation, news reading. And I love this bit, Mary digs out. He reckoned he wasn't a good fit for the national broadcaster. I played jazz and hated Irish music. I didn't speak Irish apart from the minimum and my father was not in the GPO in 1916. It was still a time <laughs> yeah. when these family trees could, could determine isn't paths. It, isn't it weird that the the what was uh, such an ostensibly Republican thing ended up producing such royalty? That if, if you weren't a descendant of one of the sacred <laughs> yeah. clans of 1916 that you weren't supposed to get anywhere. Um, and I, I love the irony that like he played jazz and hated Irish music. Of course, the last broadcasting he ever did was his programme on Lyric on Sunday afternoons. Yes. Uh, still, still playing jazz music uh, right up until his very end. Um, when it is announced that RT are going to do this um, this chat show, the word that keeps coming up everywhere is America. The idea this is some sort of American-style show. Yeah, the, the, the Americans love Saturday Night Live. You know, Saturday Night from New York City. And as, as you mentioned before, Kim, it's a Saturday Night show uh, mm. when it goes live. So that ties into this American idea too. And the Examiner have this telefish errand is to try an American idea, an informal programme of music, song and conversation stretching over the witching hour. On some American local television stations, this type of programme can go on from midnight until 3 or 4 a.m. I love this. Or until the conversation and singing runs out and the physical inability to keep going any longer dictates closed down time. That's a forgotten aspect of the Late Late, that when Gay Byrne was the presenter in latter years, he was also its executive producer, so he could decide whether they would buy more time. So right now, if Ryan Tuberty is looking at the clock and going, oh, right, God, we're finished, no. And maybe the toy show is the only night where you have licence to run late. Back then, Gabo was the producer as well, so Gabo could go, ah, no, we'll, we'll take another Which 20 minutes because totally, good. Totally different idea of a show. Isn't yeah. it? And that, uh, people tuned in because of that, I think. They didn't mm. know how long it was going to go on. And then the first ever edition of the show, I mean, who's on it? I mean, it hasn't got the big budget yet, of course, so it's all local. Uh, Count Cyril McCormack, who's the son of John McCormack. Uh, Ken Gray, who's a TV, really bold to have a TV critic. Yeah, on, the first on the first show of a TV How program. How do you think it's going, yeah. yeah, talking about this idea of a TV show. Very meta, you know. Mm. Uh, and George Hodnett, who's a great character, Hoddy. He was a jazz musician, journalist, theatre performer. People probably, they know his work, but they don't know his name. Uh, he wrote that great satirical song, Take Her Up to Monto, 
which was ah. a skit on Irish folk songs. It was a wind-up about Irish folk music. Is, that, is it a skit? Yeah. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know <laughs> that it was a Mickey take. A, that very bohemian Pike theatre and Luke Kelly heard it. Went, That's brilliant. That's a brilliant skit. Oh, and right. it actually became kind of what it parodied. Yeah. But this is the, the line-up, if you will, and it's it's very local. It's all drawn from, from Irish public yeah, life. I did not know that that was, uh, it, that it was supposed to be a Mickey take of the genre that it's now ended up being held up as. Um, and interesting, you touched on it there because it's a far cry from the modern day version of it. But when people tuned in on any given week, they didn't know who they were going to see. Yeah, and none of those names were household names. So you, you were really taking a chance on on, on on who was going to be honest when you tuned in. And then the show was live, which is a big deal. You know, in, in, in a country that had come so late to television, it was still in its total infancy. I mean, the people working on television were new to television. Yes, yeah. Never mind the audience. So it's a really bold decision to add an air of the unexpected. And little things do go wrong, you know, in the production. But Fanula Doyle O'Neill wrote a, a lovely biography of Byrne. She captures something about that show. She says, its main strength which no longer exists as part of its format, was its refusal to reveal in advance what was planned for that night's programme. That meant that Byrne in the early days had to live dangerously, never knowing who might pop out of the audience and deliver a broadside. It's kind of a reminder of Saturday Night Television now, yeah, as it stands, the Tommy Tiernan absolutely. format. Absolutely. The Tommy Tiernan show trades on that, doesn't it? Mm. So, yeah, it doesn't go without a hitch. I mean, one episode is pre-recorded. They didn't expect this to be such a hit for the reason it was a hit, and they didn't think it would be a big deal if you pre-recorded one. But Byrne was on holidays and one of okay. them goes out and yeah. the newspapers pick up on that, that it's actually not as exciting to watch this show when you know nothing too mad's going to happen in it. But the letter-writing public, you know, the plain people of Ireland, they mm. loved it. I mean, the heralds heaped praise on it. Probably the most talked about programme television Aaron has yet done. I mean, and granted, it's like six or seven months into RTE's lifetime, yeah, exactly. so like, that's not yeah. saying much. There's right? not a whole lot to go up against. <laughs> not only has it aroused more comment than any other show, but it has provoked more bitter criticism and wild huzzas than any other. What's very striking about the whole thing, though, is purportedly how different it felt from the American shows that everyone said it was aping, and particularly in one key way, which is that you mentioned the the Johnny Carson types or all the sort of the the elder statesmen of American <laughs> broadcasting who were hosting these things. Gay Byrne, by comparison, was a very very young man. I, I'm surprisingly young. I mean, when you look at that footage, I mean, pe- people generally were more mature in their ways, but Byrne is 26 years of age. When that show airs, for which, the first which time. makes sense because he was well, he did it for thirty seven years, so he must have been in his early sixties when he yeah. did did give it up. But yeah, to, to start at twenty six, and as you say, for a model that's built around the idea of a veteran broadcaster, that's kind of bold and new. But I mean, yeah, you couldn't be a veteran broadcaster. It doesn't matter what age, what age you are. You couldn't be a veteran broadcaster in a country where television was so new anyway. Mm. You know, so everyone was new to the field. But but uh, anyone who had any broadcasting experience at all was a veteran. Absolutely, yeah. and look, he, it, it describes its aim in that first series as being to bring to the students the pop singer, the politician, the man of controversy, not the woman of controversy, the man of controversy, the visiting celebrity, anyone who has something worthwhile to say. But that, that the youth of the presenter mm. is, I think, what really sets it apart. Well, a meta question then for you as a historian yeah. uh, when you think about it. So we're talking about how, how differently those watching today would have found the first series. How do you think the historians of tomorrow uh, will find the present day Late Late Show? That. The show still exists six decades after starting is itself interesting, but I was thinking back over you know, the Tuberty era of the show. Yeah. There's a couple of things I think that will really be looked back on. I mean, the standing ovation for Catherine Corliss, yes. uh, the local historian yeah. who brought the, the Tune Baby story to national attention. I mean, that will definitely be, be a, a milestone moment in Irish television. Uh, the very first show, I mean, talk about a baptism of fire, <laughs> 2009. There's a certain anger in the country, isn't there? Mm-hmm. And Ryan Tuberty interviews Brian Cowan you know, against the backdrop of total economic meltdown. Yeah. Mm. And there is this kind of universal uh, agreement or near universal agreement among critics that Turbody has done a very, very solid job. And I think 
he was lucky mm. in terms of the time he was presenting the show too because just like Gay Byrne these were transformative years for Ireland you know mm. and the show kind of maintained that feeling of being important in all kinds of debates and referendums and mm. all of that kind of stuff so, and the toy show and the toy show yes. but yes yeah, some aspects of the first series and you touched on this uh, the surprise dimension I mean now they're adopted by other shows on Irish television and look at how well the public have responded to the Tommy Tiernan's yeah. show mm. uh, so yeah the late late on a few occasions in the past, they've gone back to the, to the, to the drawing board. They've mixed things up a little bit uh, and maybe they will again. I wonder, will the uh, the next Late Late Show host, uh, whoever it is, Claire Byrne, uh, will, they be given the same, <laughs> will they be given the same privilege of, of getting the Taoiseach in on their first night? Because that could be an interesting exchange if, uh, if Claire Byrne is interviewing Dommy, um, Leo Varadkar uh, in the months to come. Uh, Donald Fallon, as ever, thank you very much for that. Donald Fallon, who is the author of several books, including the Easton's Book of the Year 2022, uh, Three Castles Burning, History of Dublin in 12 Streets, uh, available in all good bookshops. His podcast of the same name covering the history of the capital city at Three Castles Burning, also available wherever you get your podcasts online. On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk.